Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. If you turn in that Bible this morning to the 20th chapter of John. And there in this chapter, we're going to be considering one of the what we call the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. We've celebrated the resurrection of Jesus. We're so incredibly happy for it. It, it proved something to us. It showed that Jesus is victorious over all that comes against him, even death. But then the movement has not yet begun. So one of the dynamics of the post-resurrection appearances is kind of every one of them is a little bit different. Every one of them shows something that's a little bit different. But here, what we learn is that there are some dynamics. I believe Jesus wants to teach us even this morning. Come on up here. Uh, just and, and we're so very grateful that uh, the Lord's at work in our life. And this is one of the passages that showed not only was he still at work in the disciples' life, but he had an incredible, incredible future form. So Jason's going to read for us this morning out of John 20. We're going to begin at chapter, chapter 20, verse 19 down through 23. Thank you. Would you please stand in reverence to the Word of God? On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said that, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Let us pray. Father God, we, we praise you for this time, for being able to have the chance to draw closer to you in these in this time of the coronavirus, Father. We ask in Jesus' name, Father, that According to your will, that you keep it away from us as you continue to keep us healthy as Jehovah Rapha. Father, we also ask that you anoint the words that Pastor Matt has chosen for today, that they prick our hearts, and that we not only apply them to our lives for this week, but for the rest of our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. So let's get right into this. Verse 19 says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week. Now, today happens to be day 8 of Pentecost. And uh, so this is the deal. In Leviticus 23, it says, you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday for the Jews. So day after the Sabbath would have been last Sunday. So from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. So what they were doing was counting 50 days, and day 50 was that great harvest festival called the Day of Pentecost. And that becomes, for us, important. 
Listen, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament we don't have to do, including what we're about ready to do. We don't have to do this. We just think it's kind of fun. We're going to count. And the reason we count is it said that in the Old Testament to get them ready for Pentecost, and we think that's such an important New Testament holiday now, we need to celebrate it, remember it, and try to apply the lessons of Pentecost to our lives. So we just do something silly here. I don't know any other congregation that does this. So you're unique. How about that? Feels good being unique, doesn't it? So we're going to do it. Uh, day eight, so we're just going to count one through eight. Last Sunday, Easter, was day one. Okay, so let's just count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. All right, and eight is today. We're going to keep counting until we get up to day 50. And that's going to be the day of Pentecost. And the reason that's such an incredible day is, well, one of the reasons, it's our birthday. Now, I don't know about you, I love birthdays. I mean, I've loved, and I'm the kind of guy that, uh, you know, pretends not to get too excited about it, but it's the most exciting day of the whole year for me. It's my birthday. Well, I'm thinking if the church has a birthday, why wouldn't we celebrate that even greater than your own birthday? It's a birthday of the church, for crying out loud. Let's ex- be excited about it. Let's exult in it. And so we do. We bring out the cake. We have some balloons. We have a meal. We have a great sermon. Usually not me. That's why I can say it's usually great. It's just a wonderful day. So we celebrate it because we think it ought to be celebrated. And this is the point. Stanley Jones makes a great point of this over and over again in his books. We have largely forgotten it. And that seems to be pretty reflective of what's happened to the church. We're living between Easter and Pentecost. We need to be living after Pentecost. And Pentecost is the day when we're full to the brim of the Holy Spirit and we go on mission. And the world is changed because of that movement. It's a spirit-filled movement, but it's a movement nonetheless. So this great expectancy for the birthday of the church, we're to keep counting. So just remember, tomorrow's nine, all right? Just go ahead and count through the week. Today's the ninth day of Pentecost. And I want to pray in such a way that I feel like you're going to do a fresh thing, a new thing for me on the day of Pentecost, right? So there we go. It says here in verse 19 as well, when the doors were shut where the disciples were, there was a fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and stood in their midst. Now, we're not quite sure the room they were in, but we think, a lot of scholars think, it's probably the same room where they had the Last Supper. And eventually, it may well be the same room where this Pentecost thing is going to happen. Acts 2 happens. Remember, they were in a room, and all of a sudden, there were tongues of fire above each one of them. We think it may well be the same room. And I have been in what they call that room. I don't know if that was that room, but just kind of stand in there and sort of think, okay, this is where Jesus washed feet. This is where they did the Last Supper. And think, if not here, a room kind of like this, and this is where you know they were seeing Jesus. And they're, they're in fear of the Jews. And then this was where <laughs> tongues of fire, somewhere up here. I mean, it's a pretty cool thought. And if it's not here, it's somewhere close. And just to think in terms of, oh, my goodness, could the Lord do it again? Now, here's why I think maybe he needs to do it again. It says they were fearful behind closed doors. Does that sound familiar? Hey, come on. That's where we're living today. We're living in fear behind closed doors. And so, and by the way, some of that fear is, I don't want to get it. And some of that fear is, I don't want to give it. 
And so all that being understood, we're living behind closed doors, and the Lord says, hey, I want you to know, I am standing in your midst, even behind closed doors. I think it's a message for today. I, uh, I looked this up. There's a guy named Dr. Theo Societies that said, actions motivated by fear fall into four types. There's freeze, fight, or flight, or fright. You got that? Freeze, fight, flight, or fright. So freeze means you stop doing what you're doing and you focus on the scary thing. And that's all you can do. And so they're fearing, hey, they killed Jesus. Maybe they're coming for us. And they're thinking, hey, we might be about ready to die. They're coming for us. And so they got their, they got their ears up next to the door trying to think, is that a step towards our door? Could they be about ready to knock it down and get us too? And they're just absolutely calcified in their fear. And so there is this thing called freeze. You stop what you're doing. You focus on the scary thing. Then there's this either fight or flight. And I don't think these guys right now could be uh, accused of fighting. All right, so let's just go with flight here. And flight means basically you have chosen flight. You've tried to get away from the problem. You're running. All right. And then there is fright. You obsess, you ruminate, you complain, but you take no action. Being continuously in fright mode can lead to hopelessness and depression. And y'all, I see us moving that way if the Lord doesn't do something. We need for the Lord to move. We need for the Lord to be in our midst. We need to feel him standing in our midst. So freeze, flight, or fright. The disciples are behind closed doors, and the Christian faith is ready to die a quick death. Listen, they're going to carry it out there. But if they're not going to carry it out there, it's over. And Jesus comes and shows up. i got to tell you, everyone here probably has a story like one I'm about ready to tell you. How, uh, in our case, it was fearful of everybody. We, we had an elementary school called Washington Elementary. And it was uh, on uh, that side of town which meant we were poor at Washington Elementary, not like we, we hated Eisenhower. Eisenhower, now there, everything's named after presidents. All the streets are named after presidents. All the schools are named after presidents. Eisenhower, now that, that's where all the rich kids went. And, and St. Rose Catholic, you know, oh, you talk about advantages. Everybody's got advantages. We got no advantages. Uh, we're just a bunch of, you know, and, and we couldn't even find coaches. Every, every time a sport came up, it was up to me and a couple of my buddies to go find a coach. No one wanted a coach as we were such losers. Uh, shoot, we weren't just fearful of, of the world outside of us. People were fearful of us. We were such losers. And, and one day, here comes wrestling seasons, Washington Elementary, and I'm not quite in the mode yet where I'm picking coaches. But uh, I remember I'm, I'm in fifth grade, and all of a sudden, uh, we're looking for a coach, and no coach is coming. Finally, a guy walks in. We couldn't believe it. He walks in. He's one of the coolest guys in the high school. He walks in, just kind of had that walk, you know, and we're thinking, oh, my goodness, could that be David Cogdale? And it was. It was David Cogdale, and he was an unbelievable wrestler, and he was incredible on the high school team, and he was a cool cat, and we all knew it. Everybody wanted to be like a guy like David Cogdale, and he walks in. He says, hey, guys, I'm your coach. And we thought, no, whoa, teach us. And he did. He taught us. Now, some of the things I, I think he taught us, we didn't even, now that I think back on it, I'm not even sure they were right. 
Okay, get in the crouch. This is our crouch. And this is our crouch. All our hands are going to be out like this. That's going to be a signature. Everybody's going to get in there. We're going to, or, you know, but our hands are going to be like this. Now, no good wrestler has their hands like this. But he told us that's our signature. We're going to go into the confidence. Come on, everybody get up. Get in the crouch. Put out your hands. Wash it in elementary. Yeah. So he taught us any number of things, simple moves. But simple moves done aggressively are good moves. And he taught us good moves. And we were the best team. We went from worst to the best because one guy showed up and taught us, this is how you do this. This is how you can have a signature wrestling group. And this is how we win. And then he started doing things like this. So I want you guys to go over to meditate. We said, let's meditate. So I want you to sit in there. I want you to just sit down. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think of going in for the takedown. Picking a guy up and putting him down. Then I want you to think. So the whole thing was, I want you to think about how you're going to win this match. Think about it. Meditate on it. And I tell you what, it worked. When we got across, we said, well, I've already beat you once today. Maybe two or three times. This will be easy to beat you now. One more time. He taught us how to be excellent. One guy walked in and went from worst to best. I think that's... Much more, much more, much more than that is what Jesus did with these guys. You are the losers in this community. You were following disciples of a guy that just got crucified. And not just crucified. Listen, crucifixion was, they'd rope you up there. If they really wanted to be brutal, really wanted to be ugly, really wanted to show you how much of a loser you were, then they'd pin you. They didn't pin everybody. They hardly pinned anybody. But they pinned Jesus just to make a brutal point. You are a loser, and all your people are losers, and these losers now are behind closed doors. And who walks in but the resurrected Jesus? And it changed their lives, I guarantee you. So, let's keep moving here. Shalom. <laughs> he said to them, Shalom, peace be with you. The Old Testament word was shalom. Peace, shalom be with you. So Jesus said to them, again I say, shalom. You can see it in 19, 21, and then a couple verses that we didn't read today, you're going to see that word again, peace. Peace, peace, peace. I believe God does some of his best work right in the middle of fear. I believe it. Now can I get a witness on it? I believe that God does some of his best work when we're most fearful. And in dictionaries, when you look up fear, and I love to do this, uh, I, I, for me, it's very helpful to look up words in the dictionary and find out what the opposite is. So the opposite of fear is confidence, but not here. The opposite of fear is not confidence here. Here, the opposite is peace. And let me tell you why I think it's the opposite here. If you're fearful, you're not whole. If you're fearful, you're not complete. Jesus intends by his presence and being in the midst to change all of that. Because the word shalom in the Old Testament means whole and complete. So Jesus comes in, and by the way, I, I imagine there would be some people say, ah, he didn't mean anything by that word, because that's how you said hi back in the day. I don't, I don't buy it from I don't think John says, hey, Jesus showed up and said hi. I don't think that's what he's saying. And he said it three times. He said hi three times? Come on, Hi. Hi, Thomas, hi. 
I don't buy it for a minute. I think he's making a point. Shalom, peace. You're missing something right now. You're fearful right now. I can complete you. I can make you whole. I'm going to do that with my presence, and I'm going to do that with, well, we're going to see what he's going to do it with here. Let's keep moving. First thing he does is to complete them is to say, hey, look at this, my hands. Look at my side. Look at these wounds. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think the obvious thing is to prove it's me. Ain't nobody else got these this weekend around Jerusalem. Just me. I've got wounds. Look at them. And they look and think, oh, my goodness, it is Jesus. I think that's a big part of it. But I think there's another reason. I think there's another reason why he said, look at my wounds. I think the other reason is, hey, they tried to do this to me to kill me dead. They couldn't do it. And by the way, they're going to try to do that to you and worse. And they're not going to be able to kill the church of Jesus Christ. They tried and couldn't do it. They're going to continue to try and they won't do it. We are going to endure. We're going to continue to rise up. We're still going to be standing in the midst of a lost culture. They will not be able to accomplish their ends. We are going to be victorious. Look at my wounds. And then this, verse 21. Then Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. Shalom, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Listen, don't think that you're just supposed to enjoy this idea of resurrection or just supposed to enjoy the fact that you're putting all your trust in me and now you get to brag, hey, I am a disciple of a resurrected king. That's not the point here. The point here that you need to hear me make is that I am sending you out. And there's too many people today in evangelical America that think, hey, I have said a prayer of acceptance, and now I go to church, and I go to a small group, and I tithe, and I'm very much involved in my church, and that means I'm saved. It doesn't mean you're saved. Because disciples are sent people. If you are not sent, if you aren't out there serving some cause that Jesus has assigned you, if you're not out there working for Him, then you can bet you're not one of His. He says, so send I you because disciples are sent people. There's no way to live the life of abundance unless you know you're sent and you know what you're sent for and you're doing what you're sent for. And there's all kinds of people that have no idea that they are sent, they know why they're sent, and they serve the objectives of that sentedness. And I don't know what it is for you, but I know every one of you are gifted by God. You're supposed to know how you're gifted by God. If you ever thought about it, look over the spiritual gifts, whatever, but you don't need any spiritual gifts. I think you could write a list of three ways I'm gifted by God and then say, now that means let me go. Let me go do what my gifts would indicate I'm supposed to do. So I don't know the first time I did this. I don't know when it was. But it kind of became obvious to me, hey, I'm a teacher. I better go teach. Jesus has sent me in the world to go teach. Therefore, I will teach. Can I tell you who my favorite people are to teach? Honestly, not you. 
It's people that aren't yet part of us. I love to go out to the prison and preach. I love to go out to the prison and teach. That's my favorite place. I've often said, hey, listen, when I die, that's how I want to die. As much as you've done to the least of these, you've done it unto me, and I was in prison, you came to me. I would love to die preaching in prison, teaching in prison, sent by God to go to the prison, and dying do what he sent me to do. I would love that. May my heart attack come then. Serious. May my stroke come then. May the tornado whip through then. Whatever. May it happen then. And I'm going to tell you, it's a great life when you know how you're gifted and how Jesus has applied those gifts. And you're living that life. The good life is not a big house. The good life is not a 401k in the millions. The good life is knowing I've been sent. Can I tell you? I, uh, first, one of the first things I ever did. Oh my goodness, I never, I never put this together until just now. Caleb, one of the first great things that, that happened to me in my teaching career was I was at a Ohio Christian University. Uh, and that's where Caleb teaches now. Never thought about that until just now. And they, uh, they took me to this campus and they put me on the back. I went back there when I visited Caleb last and they're, they're long gone. Thank the Lord. They put me in a, uh, in a trailer back on the backside of campus, and they left me alone, and it was like 105 degrees all week long in Ohio that week. And uh, I had at night six, I kid you not, six fans blowing on me. They just forgot all about it. Here, here's your trailer. See you later. And so I was teaching that week, so I'd wake up, I'd go spend the whole day in the library just so I could stay cool. I would teach my class, and then I'd go home at night with six fans blowing on me. By the way, Boston was playing the Lakers in the NBA championships. That's how long ago this was. I remember going to class one day and uh, the students knowing more about evangelism than I knew, and I was a professor of evangelism. And so I started saying, instead of fake it, let me just start asking them questions. Hey, what's some ideas that come out of your ministry? What are some of the things Jesus is blessing in your congregations? He says, one of the guys says, well, last church I took, uh, I went there and uh, all we had was six little old ladies. That's it. Six little old ladies. That's the, that's the whole church. And they all sat on the front row, which means all the rest of the church, you know, I love, I love front row people, I love you. You all my heroes. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, this, this front row is even better. But I, I'm going to tell you, they were front row people. All the rest of the congregation was empty. And he said, okay, uh, let, me just, let me do some teaching, some training, some preaching here. And so he handed them all spiritual gift inventories. Fill out these dots. Add up the dots. It'll tell you what you're spiritually gifted in. So here. I want you to take, take them home next Sunday, bring them back, and we'll talk about it. So they brought them back, and uh, they handed them in, and they were empty. Not a one of them filled them out. He said, why didn't you fill them out? He says, we don't like tests like that. We don't think they're spiritual. By the way, I'm not so sure they weren't right. We're not so sure they're spiritual. Oh, oh. what am I going to do now? And my whole sermon was planned around that. He says, well, let me ask you, what is there you can do? What do you do? And they couldn't think of a thing, not one thing. Well, they thought of one thing. We can bake cookies. And they looked down, all six of them, they could bake cookies. He says, well, so that's what I got to work with. The spiritual gift of this congregation, and I'm not so sure, I can't remember, but I'm not so sure Paul said, hey, the spiritual gifts are teaching and leadership and encouragement and baking cookies. I don't remember him saying that, but nonetheless, they're saying, our spiritual gift is baking cookies. He says, yeah. Can you bake a bunch of them? Yeah, we can bake a bunch of them. All right, then let's do it. 
Like how many? Thousands and thousands. Let's bake cookies until we can bake them no more. And so they bake cookies. Then they said, now what are we going to do? He says, you all are going to take these around to the whole town. That wasn't a huge town. It wasn't Clinton. It was, it was probably a, a third of Clinton. And so let's just take them around to every house. Then what are we going to say? Well, I made a little track about telling a little bit about our church and our six little old ladies that sit on the front row and won't do what the pastor wants them to do. I made up a little track. So you just go up there, and what do we say? He says, this is a gift from this church. We're the church down on the corner, red brick church on the corner, and uh, we just want you to know we love you and we're praying for you. That's it. So these little old ladies fanned out. Took them a couple weeks to do it, but they went to every house and just said, hey, we're the little red brick church on the corner, and we love you and we're praying for you. I said, did that work? He says, oh. He says, we got that year four or five young families that joined the church because of the scent attitude of those ladies once they baked their cookies. So what kind of gifts do you have to have to be sent? Any kind of gift you've got. And then we you say, I, I can't do anything. I said, well, can you pray for somebody? Yeah, I could probably pray for somebody. Then send your prayers. No, send yourself with prayers to people and just start saying, hey, Christina, grab my hand. I'm praying for you. That's powerful stuff. You fan out across the community. One of the great things, Nazarene's got, got a clip of this. Old lady, this, one old lady, she was probably 35, 40. And, uh, and uh, she goes from business to business saying, is the owner in? And if they say, yeah, I'd like to talk with him. And you're thinking, oh boy, here it goes. You know, the owner comes out and says, hey, can you grab my hand? I want to pray for your business, that God would prosper you and send you a whole different trajectory of life in this community. And she'd pray that prayer. If that didn't happen, she'd go up to the Wendy's. She goes, hi, my name is uh, Joan. And uh, is the owner in? No. Well, baby, come here. Grab my hand right now. I'm praying for you. And she would do that all over town, over and over and over again. She says, I can pray. That's about all I can do. So let me go out. Let me send myself. Let Jesus send me out to community to do just that. You don't think that can change some lives, some hearts, add people to your church? Because of a scentedness, and that's what we're all supposed to be about. Next thing is this. This missional breath. I have no idea. This must have been the... Maybe it was weird. Maybe it wasn't so weird. I don't know. This uh, end of 21. I also send you, Jesus says, then when he had said this, he breathed on them. You ever thought what that was, must have looked like? He breathed on them. And said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. A little strange. But unquestionably, it's hearkening back to Genesis. When God breathed into the nostrils the breath of life. And then, perhaps in Ezekiel 37, when there's a valley of dry bones, and all of a sudden the breath, the wind, the Spirit of God comes across those valley, comes across the valley, and all of a sudden things are coming alive because of that breath. Now the word in the Old Testament is ruach. The ruach of God is coming through. This breath, this wind, the Spirit. And I've always thought, right up till I saw this scene, I've always thought, that must have been weird for the disciples. As Jesus comes up and says, that's just not normal. But then I saw, I read it, but once I saw it, that it didn't look so unusual to me anymore. 
It was a historian, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know that movie, the, the Jesus figure, the Messiah figure, Aslan comes along, and, uh, and all of a sudden now, the people are oppressed because of the white witch. He's going to set them free from the oppression of the white witch. And one of the things the white witch has done is, anytime she's irritated, she says, boy, you people on the front row, I hate front rowers. And the white witch would have said, bing, and you'd have become a statue right there. Couldn't move, couldn't do anything. You were a statue until something was going to happen. And apparently what happened was Aslan showed up, and Aslan came down, and the lion, and all of a sudden these stone figures became life. Ah, the, the first time I ever saw something like that, I thought, Oh, well, if that's what happens, if that's what would have happened when Jesus breathed on them, it wouldn't be so weird. And I thought to myself, and then, by the way, in other books, Aslan, the lion, would do the same thing when he wanted to breathe uh, courage and confidence into the kids. They're kids. The uh, whole thing's about four kids. And when he wanted them to have, about ready to send you out. So here we go. And all I could think of after that was, hey, that's not weird. Breathe on me! I feel statue-like today. I want to be free. I don't want to be calcified. I don't want to be a statue. I want to be free. Breathe on me, Jesus. Now, then it says this thing. He breathed on them, and then it says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, what was that? Wait a minute. They're, they're going to do that in 49 days. So they're, they're day one there. So in 50 days, that's when that's going to happen. Why is it saying it here? It's not supposed to happen for 50 days. The way I read the Bible, and I, I don't know exactly, scholars talk about this, and they're not exactly sure. But I think there's two reasons here. First of all, I think it's preparatory. I don't think they get the fullness of the Spirit in that moment. I think, however, it's preparing them to receive the Spirit. And by the way, you need to pray the same thing. If today you are saved, but you are not full of the Spirit, we believe that's quite possible. You need to know that you have the Spirit within you, but you need to say, fill me up, Spirit. I let you loose into every part of my life. And that's right there why we're not full. Because we haven't let Jesus loose, the Spirit loose into our finances. They're yours. All that money's yours, not mine. Take it. We haven't let him loose into our career. Haven't let him loose into our marriage. Haven't let him loose in any number of dynamics in our life. So, Lord, be loosed. And it says that it can happen, but you've got to be willing for that fullness of the Spirit. And so, I believe it's preparing them for that moment. The other thing I think is this. For the next 40 days, Jesus is going to have a Bible study with them. I don't know who's involved in every session of that Bible study, but for the next 40 days, Jesus is going to teach them using the Old Testament. Right? There's not a New Testament that's written yet. So he's using the Old Testament. He's going to say, all right, that was talking about me. This is what it means going forward. So for the next almost six weeks, Jesus is going to have... Wouldn't you love to be part of that? Billy taught Bible study this morning. I'm sure it was good, but Billy, I would have a preference for Jesus over you. Wow. Jesus saying this is what Isaiah 53 meant. It was talking about me. And, by extension, it was talking about you. Boy, to hear these messages and to be set free under the teaching 
So I believe that Holy Spirit comes in preparation for what's going to happen on the day of Pentecost. And if you are going to absorb the lessons Jesus wants you to absorb, you must receive the Holy Spirit. And the fuller you are of that Spirit, the more you're going to learn. And the more that learning is going to impact you. The last thing is this. And this is, there's some unusual things in this passage. This is one of those unusual things. It says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. What's that? Well, first thing is, you never take a scripture out of the context of the rest of scripture. So, whatever that means, it means that in the light of the other powerful teachings on forgiveness in scripture. And what we know about forgiveness is, only God can forgive you of your sins. But apparently, so can Christians. So both apparently are true. So how is this supposed to work in together? And I think there's a way to work these things in together. First off, I want you to know, uh, you've heard me talk about him much in this congregation because he's impacted my life. Uh, Crawford Howe, Dr. Crawford Howe, was uh, my mentor for years. And he, he just died, as well you know, several months ago. And I felt, I felt kind of alone ever since then. I told Mary this morning, got tears in my eyes, saying, I, I miss him. Uh, he spoke into my life, meant so much to me. But uh, he just kind of adopted me. I said, hey, listen, I, I hate that this relationship is ending. I'm not going to see you again. Is there any way we can continue to relate? So we did it by a phone call every Friday. And we just had this hour chat. And we saw each other in the interim from time to time, but mostly it was a phone call relationship. And uh, Crawford Howe one day told me, Matt, anything a DS, a district superintendent can do, mission area directors ought to be able to do. Now, you don't know all that that means, but there are general superintendents, guys like bishops in the church in the Nazarene. And then there are guys that are under them that are district superintendents. So our district is much of Tennessee plus Mississippi. It's a big district. And uh, we've got a, a district superintendent named Dwight Gunter. I hope that he can come someday and, and, and preach here. But uh, Dwight is a district superintendent. But what Crawford was saying was, uh, Dwight, you've got a guy named Matt Friedman that's the mission area director of his area of Mississippi. So, Dwight, what you ought to tell Matt to do is do, do my job in that mission. Just equip him, teach him, coach him, encourage him. But anything a DS can do, Matt ought to be able to do. Let him do it. And, and, and Crawford Howe actually did that with his missionary directors. I, I said that this morning, Matt. I said, listen, I, I, I'd be a terrible district superintendent. Terrible. But I could boss somebody to do my job for me. Hey, Regina, go, go, go do that for me. This is how you do it, I think. I've actually done it before, but I think, go do it. Now, I, could, I could hold those guys account. I can do that. That's what you call equipping for ministry and letting people, that's what, sending people for ministry. They're going to make mistakes. Sometimes they'll be embarrassing to you. But if you let them do the job because they're able to do the job and you've encouraged them to do the job and you've equipped them, they can do the job. And Crawford Howe raised up more district superintendents as a district superintendent than anybody else in the world. Why? Because he said, anything I can do, you can do. Go do it. Now, he equipped them. He trained them. He coached them. But go do it. What do you think Jesus is saying here? Remember, I forgive sins. 
Now I'm sending you out with apostolic authority to be able to do this kind of thing as well. Keep in mind, only I can forgive sins. But what just happened? You just told us to forgive sins, but only you can forgive sins. How does that work? Well, what we need are people that are smart enough about the item called forgiveness in Scripture that you can sit down with someone, and let's just say me and Will sit down together. And, uh, and I say to Will, these are my sins. This is my problem. This is how I've hurt somebody this week, this month, this year, and I need God's forgiveness. Will looks over at me and says, well, some of these things we can't do anything about, but that thing right there you can, that thing you can. So my counsel to you is go take care of business here. Go shore up these places because you just don't get off scot-free. If you can go back and heal and mend, then go back and heal and mend. And then let's have another talk. I go back to him. I said, I've asked forgiveness. I pleaded to God, and I've done what you said. And Will can look right back in my eyes and say, Matt, you are forgiven. Now, is that necessary? All I know is in the book of James it says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. Now, I'm not all up into this Catholic thing, but I think the Catholics could teach us a lesson. We never ask forgiveness from another human being because, hey, only God can forgive, yeah? But there's also this passage, and this passage says, yeah, and people need to forgive too and have the power to say, and thus your sins by God are forgiven. Why? Because I have been sent by God, and Will could say this to me, Matt, I've been sent by God to be in your life to say, okay, I hear your sins, I want you to do these things, and then your sins are indeed forgiven. And I think the Catholics have a point. I think they, you know, are poss- it's possible they can cheapen that sometimes. Friends, I've done this horrible, terrible, wicked thing. Well, that is a terrible, horrible, wicked thing. Say three Hail Marys and we'll see you next week. No, 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 no. No! Whoa, Padna. Let's take it more seriously than that. But nonetheless, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. And this verse right here means something, doesn't it? I think if you've messed it up, you need to go find someone mature in Christ and say, I need to tell somebody my sins. Richard Foster talks about this. Richard Foster says, I asked a friend, is there somebody that you know that I could do this kind of thing with? And the guy says, yeah, man, real mature Christian here, go do it with this guy. So he met up with this guy. And Richard Foster, uh, back in the day with briefcases, uh, took out of his briefcase a long list of things. He said, man, this is the stuff I've done. I should have asked forgiveness before now. I just haven't. These are the things I should have done. These are the things I didn't do. And the guy looks over, over him and says, your sins are forgiven. And Richard Foster, with about ready to put that paper back into the briefcase, and the guy says, oh, no, 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 no. Let me have that. And he tore it up into a thousand pieces and burned it. Your sins are forgiven and forgotten. Y'all, we need to act like that in each other's lives. There's a guy named John Wesley. I don't know if you ever heard of him. But there's something called the Wesley Revival. And it didn't happen because of good preaching. It did not happen because of good preaching. It happened because they had groups. After John Wesley would go in or one of the other preachers would go in, they would say, okay, Anyone interested here, 
in becoming a Christian, we need for you to get into groups. So they get into groups called classes and bands. And the huge thing about that group was it wasn't a Bible study. It was confession. And the first question was, what known sins have you committed this week? And leader goes first. I'm not so sure I want to be a leader at that point. That will lead. Leader goes first. Okay. Well, this, this, nothing may have happened. That's perfect. You know, I think, I think I've lived before the Lord this week and He's enabled me. Praise God. How about you? You go around the circle. But there were another 12 or 15 questions to ask. And one of them went like this. If we see you committing a sin, is it okay if we tell you about it? And they became vulnerable one another. The Wesleyan revival didn't happen because of great preaching. The Wesleyan revival happened because of confession groups. Y'all, we're never going to have revival at Dayspring. We're never going to have revival in this nation until we take confession one to another seriously. And we haven't taken it seriously. This church, any other church that I know of, we need to be sure. We confess our sins one to another that we might be healed. So over the next couple of days, and this is not a hard thing to do, but I've said to myself for some time, I want to take this bit of poetry called a song. You'll know the song, Breathe on Me, Breath of God. But I want to memorize all the verses. And the verses go like this. Breathe on me, breath of God. Fill me with life anew, that I would love what thou dost love and do what thou wouldst do. Breathe on me, breath of God, until my heart is pure, until with thee I will one will to do and to endure. Breathe. Oh, Jesus, breathe on me, breath of God, till I am wholly thine, until this earthly part of me glows with fire divine. Breathe on me, breath of God, so I will never die but live with thee the perfect life of thine eternity. Five, six, seven, eighth day of Pentecost. And we're headed to 50. And sometime between now and 50, this is my hunch, you're going to feel his breath. And when you do, receive the Holy Spirit. You don't have to wait to day 50 to be full of that Holy Spirit either. Will you please stand? Jesus, breathe on us, breath of God. Fill us with life anew that we would love what you love and we would do what you would do. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you, Dayspring. Thank you.